Welcome into another episode of Eyes on Golf. We're going to bring in John Nucci to talk all about, uh, I guess you could say, the legal implications of everything going on on the PGA Tour. So if you want this all explained, what is going on with the PGA Tour and Live Golf, we're going to get to that in just a, a brief moment. But I want to bring in my producer here, Sam Brief, making his first appearance here on the third episode. We're going to try to start a lot of these podcasts with Sam asking uh, questions for the people, I should say. But also, what are we calling this segment, Sam? Briefly speaking. Because just briefly like you introduced speaking. me with a brief pun, my whole life has been brief puns. So this is briefly speaking. Sam is also, for everyone out there, an awesome broadcaster. Just finished up an illustrious career with the Chicago Dogs minor league baseball team out there in Chicago. You were, you were, what was the award that you won, Sam? It was American Association Broadcaster of the Year. Now, my mother probably just, wouldn't like me yeah. bragging about that, but you asked, so I'll tell. I just want the Broadcaster of the Year. That's the important part. And okay. Sam's going to do some awesome work this year for NBC Olympics in the lead up to Paris, but he's also with us. So I'll, I'll give you the floor right now. Obviously, I'll be here. Sam, you have some questions for me that hopefully I can map out for the people. Yeah, first off, thanks for the kind intro. Obviously, I'm fired up to be part of the Eyes on Golf team. We're going to build this into something special. But before we talk to John, who's a bona fide expert in all things golf law, sports law, and we'll dive into it, I just want to get some of the fundamentals out of the way because I've followed this pretty closely. And mm -hmm. I know that a few months ago, the PGA Tour and Live Golf announced a merger. And that hasn't happened. So why? Yes. And we will get everything. John's going to get into a lot of things even more than me. But, you know, to kind of give people a prologue here, the what was signed on June 6 was a framework agreement between the PGA Tour and the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia that basically mapped out the bones of what a merger would look like. But it's not a, an officially confirmed merger. So there has been there have been multiple deadlines that have been changed, pushed back. Right now, December 31st is the deadline that is marked up that these two sides need to hammer out some sort of agreement. It, it, not everything ends after that date. They'll probably, if they don't reach something, there'll be an extension. There's a lot of nitty-gritty stuff. But the bottom line is the framework uh, was announced, but the two entities, and when I, I specifically say public investment fund because that is the parent company to Live Golf they still continue to operate their independent entities in golf, which is not just live golf, but you can go to the Aramco team series on the ladies European tour side. You can go to uh, uh, Saudi golf or golf Saudi as a whole. And then the PGA tour and DP world tour continue to operate their verticals. So that is why the merger hasn't officially happened, even though the framework agreement was signed. So essentially it was, not the headline that I read, which was PGA Tour and Live Golf merge. It's Live Golf and PGA Tour announce intention to merge, and we have to see what's going to happen in the next few months. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I, I think um, there was there were also some things we should note, some things that changed kind of in that moment. There was an agreement at the time, a non-poaching clause that neither side could poach each other's golfers. That was taken out about a month later because what also has to happen is this all has to pass through the Department of Justice in the United States. And they, because of anti-competitive behavior, that clause could not exist for them to get all this passed. So there's, again, 
John's going to get into this from a legal side, but that is the basically the baseline of what you need to know there. So I know when John comes on, we're going to get really deep into the weeds because that's why we mm-hmm. have him. He studies yep. sports. He's law, smarter so than us. He's way smarter. And hence, he's the guest on our podcast. I just want to get your thoughts on this big picture question that's been bumbling around my mind a lot. How do you think golf is going to change in the next five years, 10 years? If you want to go even further, yep. feel free to. No, I think that, um, you know, you started to see it with the PGA Tour and the signature events uh, this past year, that the objective here for all of golf, and you could throw out the tours, is to get the best players in the same place more often than they had been. Because really it had been the majors and the players championship. And then you could say that the FedEx Cup playoffs had added a little bit to this. There were certain events, the Memorial uh, the Arnold Palmer Invitational come to mind, but really what you're, you're going to continue to see now is, is a centralized version of that. Um, now, a sport like, like NASCAR and Formula One, you think about, they're racing in a different location every week, and the same guys are going every week. Golf, because of the four-day grind and because every event ends up really being a week if you play in it because you have to practice and get there early. It's not going to be every week, but I do think that we'll continue to see more centralized players. And I think that we will also see uh, a more diverse area where where, more diverse locations where golf is played. I do think the game will get more international. I don't think it's going to go to the, the level of tennis where you're on a different continent. It feels like every week and there's a different swing on every continent. I think the U S will still be the base of competitive golf, but I do think we're going to see more in Europe, more in Australia, more in South America, more, I don't want to leave anyone out more, you know, we'll see South Africa. We'll see various, we'll see the Middle East. We'll see a lot more golf spread around the world. Well, and as space exploration continues to blossom and flourish, maybe we'll even see Mars, Venus, Jupiter, or Saturn. You never know. (laughs) Jeff, I'm not counting anything out. (laughs) I mean, Hey, you know, you got Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, spending billions to go out to space. We'll see what happens. One more thing I want to get out of the way before we bring John on is there's been so much, of course, in the last couple of weeks about John Rahm. We had an Mm -hmm. emergency podcast last week. He's going to live golf. Yep. What do you think has changed or has it at all changed since he made that announcement? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a great question. And, you know, you so you saw the immediate reaction on the PGA tourist side strategic sports group was the, uh, the announcement. I want to make sure I get that right. I believe that was the group of these yeah, strategic sports group, the group of these professional sports owners in North America who have come together led by Fenway sports group to be an investor potentially to be a partner in this new PGA tour for-profit company, which is kind of working title PGA tour enterprises, you know, we'll see what it is exactly called. And that is a, is a reaction a little bit to what I talked about, about the DOJ, because the original merger announcement that you talked about in June said that the public investment fund would be the top investor in this new for-profit company. Now there's some murkiness within the Department of Justice if they would approve that. So there's potentially going to be another private equity partner. Strategic Sports Group has emerged as that group. John Henry, Mark Lazary, uh, your boy, Tom Ricketts, Sam, there's a lot of big names in there. They could potentially end up being the 
I don't want to call it a majority partner, but maybe the plurality or whatever John will tell us the right legal term is for that, because I don't know if anyone's going to own 50%, but you might have need a, an, an investor based in the United States to lead this group. So I think that's a little bit of the reaction. We'll see. It's a bit of a, an expedited reaction to John Rahm being one of those top three players on the PGA Tour that goes to live golf. And all of this is to try to get something done by December 31st, or at least move in the right direction that if that extension comes, it does not go. If this affects the 2024 season, no one wants it to affect the 2025 season in terms of still the objective of getting the best players to all play together. And also for fans who are looking to keep comprehending some of these giant, giant salaries that guys are getting from Live Golf. John Roms has been reported as high as $600 million. Our guest, John Nucci, tweeted this last week that that is 0.086% of the PIF's assets. So that's the equivalent of one of us buying a cup of coffee. Although, cost of inflation here in Chicago and you in New York, I'd say not even that. So it just scratches the surface of what the PIF is able to do. With that said, I also saw a tweet that mentioned that Tommy DeVito is now more famous than John Rahm after what he did the last couple of weeks. So we'll talk about maybe maybe the brand equity and value uh, needs to be put in in separate terms, you know, in terms of what John Rahm is making, obviously significantly more a year than Shohei Otani is making. And that would have been even before he deferred 68 million per year. Yeah, Shohei's making like two mil a year. Come on, that's child's blood. Well, Bottom line. I was on a walk right before we did oh. this recording here, and I found yep. this dirty golf ball on my Is that a max corner. fly? It is a marathon. Okay. You can barely sure. read it. Uh, I don't live anywhere near a golf course or a driving range. I have no idea with why this was on the corner of my street in downtown Chicago, but it tells me it's a perfect day to record our podcast. And that, folks, is the first ever Briefly Speaking. Sam, appreciate that. Hopefully we gave you some context and a prologue as we get into John Nucci right now, who I call golf's number one internet lawyer. We're about to talk to him and find out everything from the legal side of what is going on right now between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. This is Eyes on Golf. I'm glad to now be with John Nucci, who I will call basically at this point Twitter's favorite golf lawyer. And John, on top of that, you are uh, an attorney as well. You are the chief golf law correspondent at Conduct Detrimental. I also want to mention you're, I believe, an adjunct professor at Nazareth University, the alumni of Jeff Van Gundy. I don't know if there's anyone more famous than Jeff Van Gundy to go there. Yes, he, he, he is an alumni. Both is Jeff and Stan Van Gundy, both Rochester natives. Yeah. Oh, both. That's a fair point there. Uh, but let's talk about golf. All right. Um, I mentioned you being, like I said, I've become such a big fan following all your work, following. I, I can't imagine when you decided to go to law school, you went to Penn State, that you would you imagine that you'd be going through all of this uh, anti-competitive behavior and all of the legal proceed, proceedings featuring the PGA Tour and Live Golf. Before we get into all of that, I do want to know from you, how did you get into this? How did golf law become such a big part of your life? Yeah, I, I, it's a good question because I kind of fell into it. Um, I, 
I actually went into law school thinking I was going to do criminal law. Uh, that was my initial uh, foray into that. And then uh, I did that for about, you know, three hours and was like, yeah, this is not for me. So I started transitioning <laughs> to, to, you know, other things that I love, which is sports and kind of went all in on, on a career and, and wanted to, to, to work, you know, in sports law. And uh, I just so happened to uh, be a big golf fan on top of that. I actually, um, my, my initial golf background came mostly from golf betting. Uh, I have a, a group of friends that we pretty religiously um, study and listen to dozens of uh, podcasts every week, um, try to pick value picks every week. Um, you know, we've actually done pretty well, but uh, it was mostly in golf betting. And I just became a really big golf fan and I play the game a lot. Uh, and then once the PGA Tour and live litigation happened, I just kind of realized that there were a ton of journalists on Twitter that were trying to decipher the legal aspects. Of, didn't know, uh, didn't know anything. <laughs> yeah, there, there are a lot of people that were trying to decipher all of the legal jargon and, and court filings that were going back and forth. Um, and it's kind of seemed like people might need some help. So uh, I saw a little bit of a niche there and uh, I tried to, you know, kind of fill it. And I think uh, it's gone pretty well so far. It's, it's exceeded my expectations for sure. We should, I, I try to say on these podcasts, obviously, I, I'm an independent contractor to the PGA Tour. I broadcast for PGA Tour Live. So it's, you know, it is hard in ways for me to come off as totally unbiased. And I tell people if they want to turn off the podcast right away, go ahead. But that's why I have people like you on to talk about this. So for me, 2022, things start. I know there were some rumblings of, uh, you know, wasn't even called Live Golf at first. Greg Norman was going to be the the CEO of all this. And then there was everything right. that happened with Phil around the Genesis Invitational that year. And still at that point, I wasn't sure if I saw things coming. When did you, did you see things earlier, maybe as a lawyer, did anyone see what was about to come uh, from that side? Again, I'm speaking specifically from the legal side of what was happening between the PGA Tour and Live Golf, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, were there any precedents to what was about to go on? Uh, certainly no precedent in the context of this has never happened before. Um, I think there were maybe some hints that we were headed toward litigation when, you know, we were getting emails that started off with things like, surely you jest, uh, stuff like that, that Greg Norman was firing <laughs> off. Um, you know, some statements like that are, are, are just inherently threatening. Uh, but when the players started, you know, the, the, the live players started talking about, uh, you know, focusing on the fact that they feel that they're independent contractors, which they are, um, that they can play anywhere, that they should be able to play on both tours uh, and, you know, kind of the timing of it leading up to when live London started and the players got suspended. And then the FedEx Cup happening just a couple months after that, um, I kind of expected at that point them to try to file, uh, uh, you know, for a restraining order that allowed them to play uh, and then maybe add on to that after that. I also, um, when we found out that it was a condition of at least some live players contracts that they were supposed to recruit PGA Tour members, uh, that also I tweeted out even before the PGA Tour filed their tortious interference lawsuit against live that that kind of opens them up to a tortious interference claim. Uh, because if, if they are 
obligated to try to go get people to, you know, break their membership with the tour, then uh, that kind of opens it up. So there were there were some rumblings here and there, um, but it, there's been so many developments that have been unexpected lately. I certainly can't uh, pretend to have predicted all of it. That's for sure. Well, I want so to put into context some of what you just said. Um, you know, the first live event you mentioned, Live London. I believe it was right before the U.S. Open, or mm. or right, right. I believe right before the U.S. Open in 2022 was Live London. So we're talking right around late spring. Um, that's when some of the contractual language perhaps started to leak and then that's all continue that's been continued to leak and leak and leak and this entire process has leaked for the last year and a half or so we got to you fast forward everything to the point of june 6th which we touched on a little bit in the intro before you came on that's the date that we all woke up i'm i'm sitting in my I'm sitting in my living room. That's right. I'm sitting in my living room, uh, you know, to my left. I know where I was sitting watching the CNBC interview that we saw Jay Monahan and Yasser Al-Ramayan on TV talking about things and using the term merger. Now -hmm. you see it on every post right now on social media, people commenting, I thought the two tours merged. There was also a lot of confusion that day. Was it the PGA Tour slash DP World Tour merging with Liv or merging with the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. If we can go back to that day, June 6th, because people have a lot of questions. One, did they merge? And two, what was still left open on that day that we're still seeing kind of the the remnants of now, six months later? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, I was, funny enough, being presented to a group of about 40 sports law attorneys from around the world uh, that morning presenting on the live PGA tour litigation, uh, when my phone was exploding in my pocket and I looked down and I didn't, I was just glancing down and I kept seeing merger and like all sorts of stuff. And I was like, you know, so I went up to all these 40, 40 attorneys from around the world. And I was like, just so you know, a lot of this just doesn't really may not matter anymore. Uh, so turn it into a case study, I guess. But, um, <laughs> so yeah, there was a, there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a mess with the rollout because I'm not sure Mont J and Yasir used the word merger at the time, but I know the initial PGA Tour press release mm-hmm. used the word merger, and I think the ticker on CNBC used the word merger. Um, they purposely kind of walked back that language in response to antitrust concerns. Um, but no, uh, to answer your question specifically, they did not merge at that time. Uh, all that they did on June 6th, it was actually slightly before June 6th, but all that they did was enter into a non-binding framework agreement or that said, number one, the only binding aspect of it is all the litigation is dismissed and it ends with prejudice, which means it cannot be refiled. And number two, that the parties would kick everything else down the road and that by December 31st, they would try to come to terms on a definitive agreement. So what did they negotiate at the time? There was effectively nothing that was actually negotiated at the time. Uh, really, all that they did was enter into an agreement that said, we're going to stop suing each other. We're going to stop spending tens of millions of dollars on legal fees. And we are going to try to come to terms on an agreement. And, you know, uh, bluebirds hang our laundry and everything is uh, fun and happy after that. But uh, obviously, as you as you see, that hasn't totally happened. So. 
obviously we could get into it later on, the public files showing that in 2022, not 2023, which I'm sure people that glanced fast might have missed that, 2022, the PGA Tour went from spending just over $2 million in lawyer fees to over $20 million. So you talk about not wanting to spend as much on either side on your fellow attorneys. Uh, that obviously an aspect of that June 6th announcement. Also, I mean, I, I want to ask you this. Do we ever see that outside of sports, maybe from Fortune 500 companies or competitive companies? Do we have we ever seen or has the Department of Justice or has anyone seen something similar to that? Similar in the in the context of the amount of legal fees in in two two company two companies reaching a framework agreement that, like you said, that framework agreement didn't say didn't assume all that much except yeah. more more or less start the conversation. Yeah, I, I don't think that's totally uncommon. I think uh, parties often enter into settle you know litigation and settlement agreements uh, that kind of kick the can down the road. I think. Um, what you do see more often, though, is maybe parties give themselves a little bit more than six months uh, to try to negotiate the terms that reshape an entire global sport. Uh, you know, I, I think that is uh, sort of setting themselves up for failure a little bit. Uh, and then with the reports coming out that even after that June 6th, I, I understand that they were some some dragging of the feet uh, to even start negotiations for a little while. So. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's totally uncommon. I think the DOJ has seen that before. There, there are settlement lit litigation settlement agreements all the time, framework agreements like this. Um, every company, uh, not every, but the vast majority of companies that buy and sell each other, they enter into uh, it's letters of intent, it's called, or memorandums of understanding. And it's the same type of thing. They're generally non-binding with the exception of a handful of provisions. Uh, and then they kind of agree to everything later. Um, it's just, as I mentioned, most of the time, it's not it's not uh, six months to agree to terms that, uh, you know, on this magnitude of a deal. So. And we're still ongoing after six months. I, I think uh, we'll be ongoing. One more thing or maybe more. <laughs> well, we'll get to that, but I want to stick with the timeline here. So a month, roughly a month, just over a month after that initial framework agreement was signed, we learned that one of the clauses that had been in there, which was the non-poaching clause, I'm sure it has a more of a legal term to it, but that both sides would not, the PGA Tour and DP World Tour side, the public investment fund side, the parent company of Live Golf, they would not poach each other's players, each other's golfers. That right. was taken out in July, and the reasoning was because of anti-competitive or the Department of Justice requesting that if we were ever going to get to a merger, that would need to be taken out to avoid anti-competitive behavior. What did that change in the framework agreement? Well, it changed quite a bit uh, in terms of it opened uh, at least the PGAs. I mean, well, you know, we'll, we'll take a step back, I guess. It, it was a mutual non-poaching clause, um, but that clause really only effectively uh, protected the PGA Tour at the time. Uh, the PGA Tour had obviously suspended live players, so they weren't out trying to go, re you know, get them back onto the tour. Um, so really what that did is it opened the door for the exact situation we have right now, um, which we may get into this a little more, but it opened the door for the public investment fund to uh, kind of throw a lot more money around 
maybe in response to you know their dissatisfaction with the way that the negotiations have commenced so far. And what it did is it just greatly strengthened, at least in my opinion, some people may have different opinions. I think it greatly strengthened their negotiating position uh, because they are now negotiating from a position of having somebody like John Rahm, uh, having, you know, rumors of, of other guys, <laughs> excuse me, other guys like, uh, you know, Tony and uh, Tyrrell Hatton. And I've heard, I've seen Tommy Fleetwood thrown around a little bit. So um, there are, and these are pure speculative. So, you know, please, <laughs> all, the, all the the Twitter bots out there are going to come, come after me, but um yeah, it, it's it, what it did is it opened up the PGA Tour to allow a situation like this, where I think the terms of the definitive agreement that they're going to come to now might not be as favorable to them because they don't have as much leverage as they had, you know, even 10 days ago uh, before John Rahm left. So uh, if that non-poaching and non-solicitation clause was still in there, they may have had, a you know, been coming from a much stronger negotiating position and been able to negotiate more favorable terms. But uh, you know, that's, that's where we stand now. Before people run for the Hills, uh, Tony Finau, right. Put on Instagram, hashtag, I'm not leaving. Yes, Went full did. Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Wolf of wall street. So he says he's not going anywhere. Tyrrell Hatton has reportedly, uh, reportedly, I guess, signed up to play or has confirmed his appearance in the century tournament yes. of champions, or now it's just called the century because he made the tour championship. Um, so there's that going on. You mentioned Tommy Fleetwood. You mentioned there's some other names that have been flown, thrown out. I think there's a lot of what we could call negotiating out in the open, a lot of rumors perhaps spread via leverage. But I think bringing up Tyrrell Hatton, again, purely speculative. Tyrrell Hatton, we assume he's playing in January. John Rahm, you would think, could have, and if you just – tuning in and wondering what we're talking about. John Rahm, top three player in the world, has been a top three player for much of the last three to four years. The reigning Masters champion, two-time major champion, multi-time, uh, I believe 11-time PGA Tour champion, has left the PGA Tour for Live Golf. He's the first player to leave for Live Golf since the start of 2023, since the start of this Live Golf season, months before that framework agreement that we talked about had been mentioned. You could argue... John Rom could have, why, why wouldn't he have waited until that first live event in February at Mayakoba to sign? But John, there has to be an incentive, not just for the public investment fund that you mentioned, them wanting to get to a position of negotiation, but also for John Rom to sign this deal before December 31st. Would you say probably, you know, could have gained him potentially hundreds of millions of dollars as opposed to waiting? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, and and that's kind of what Jordan Spieth alluded to, too, is that uh, John Rahm may have just seen a situation where neither side was really in a great place. And he figured, why not take the money now while it's there? Um, and I, to be frank, I'm I'm surprised other players haven't uh, thought the same thing. Um, the interesting thing to me is that Rahm, Rahm had offers on the table from Liv. Uh, in the you know 400 plus million dollar range from the start of this you know we, one of the initial offers reported uh, back when Phil and and DJ and all everyone you know all the, that initial group left was that Rom had an offer on the table for about 400 million and he turned it down. Um, so I am just curious to know exactly what happened um, you know from all of that time that that offer was on the table to the last 
six months. And perhaps it was actually the rollout, um, the way that the framework agreement was negotiated. I know a lot of players had uh, took a, took kind of big issue with that. Certainly someone like John Rahm probably feels like he should not have been kept in the dark. Uh, so maybe he felt that he didn't have to justify, uh, you know, his decision if he was to leave. Um, but yeah, he, he certainly uh, made made quite a bit of money. And I'm sure that the, the public investment fund, uh, they're, they're smart people. Uh, you know, I, I think that they probably understand that they had to sweeten the pot a little bit uh, for him to come because at the end of the day, I don't, I don't think that signing John Rahm is a play just to get more fans, to get more eyeballs to live. Um, I, you know, they, they are struggling with their TV ratings and they're struggling with ticket sales uh, by all measures. And that's with guys like Phil, Cam, Brooks, Bryson, DJ, uh, you know, all these different guys. So I, I struggle to th- believe that signing John Rahm is going to just all, suddenly make a big difference. I think that they are willing to shell out all that money and do it before this, uh, you know, December 31st deadline just to strengthen their negotiating position, which I think they've certainly done. Obviously, this shakes everything up. And in terms of John Rahm's contract, you know, I don't know if there are certain law we're seeing with Shohei Otani right now, which we we don't want to turn this into an entire baseball podcast, but (laughs) there will be potentially some legal discussions of what the Dodgers and him are doing, deferring $68 million per year. For those fans that might not know the figures, he just signed a reported deal of 10 years, $700 million, which you think would say, okay, that's $70 million in terms of average value per year. But we're being told that Shohei Otani will take $2 million every year and defer $68 million every year so that yep. comes to 680 million all the way to the end of the contract and get paid out after. Anyway, there's a lot of a lot of things going on there. John Rom's contract. One thing that I have thought to myself, well, what is John Rom's benefit if we do reach an agreement here between these two sides before December 31st? And obviously John Rom helps the negotiating uh the, the the negotiating platform for the public investment fund. Could he have a deal? that is front loaded or even signing bonus loaded to get all this done? Uh, yeah, he certainly can. I, I, the, so the terms of his deal haven't been disclosed, likely won't ever be disclosed. Um, but he, he could, I mean, he's, he's, uh, you know, uh, uh, free to contract in any way that he wants. Uh, unlike Shohei Otani, who, uh, you know, the, the Dodgers have to deal with the players union who is not going to like something like deferring $680 million of a contract for that long. Um, you know, there might be some pushback there. The, the pro golfers do not, are not subject to any players union. Uh, so Rom is kind of free to contract in any manner that he wishes. Uh, and I have to imagine that his agent, who is also Phil Milkison's agent, uh, probably negotiated something uh, along those lines where it's uh, significant upfront money. Um, obviously, they knew they had to rule out the red carpet a little bit for him to sign. Uh, and and make a little bit of a big splash here. So I would be very surprised if the terms of his contract weren't quite more favorable than the terms of maybe some of the guys that came initially or in the second wave. Which is why maybe it's just the the figures, you know, we'll never see some of these contracts or maybe it's going to be decades before we see some of these contracts. There is a difference of 
you know, there's a different conversation here than just figures and numbers. We don't know how many guys are getting paid at the end of their contracts. We don't know how many guys might be on a three or four year deal that's subject to, uh, you know, if Live Golf does potentially close its doors, you know, we're inferring that if there is a merger that comes and Live Golf does close its doors, maybe some players get paid out, some don't. So all of this comes into play. On the PGA Tour side, there has been a lot of public negotiation that the tour has had with private equity partners. There was what I would call a wishy-washiness to, was this to bring in another partner to work with this framework merger with the public investment fund? There have also been a lot of rumblings that different public and, uh, you know, public equity partners were spoken to to potentially be that dominant partner. And John, Sam and I, my producer, were talking before we came on. I don't want to use the term majority partner at all because I know Live Golf's initial in the framework agreement, they would be the top or whatever the legal term is, the top partner, but not necessarily a majority partner. We may never, we might, may not see a majority partner in this new for-profit potential entity. But talk, roundabout way of asking, what do you make of the PGA Tour having these conversations over the last few months with other private equity partners. Yeah, it's, it's very, it was a very interesting development and that started getting leaked. I don't know if it was leaked or, you know, purposely or maybe unintentionally, but it was shortly after some pressure from Congress. Uh, and they said that they, you know, could potentially bring in an outside partner uh, in order to quell Congress's antitrust concerns. Um, basically, meaning if there's some sort of domestic, you know, U.S. money in this uh, and it's not solely public investment fund, sovereign wealth fund money, that it might quell some of the concerns of Congress and maybe avoid, you know, a long drawn out uh, you know, investigation. Um, I, I do think that this entire John Rahm saga uh, was sparked from maybe the PGA Tour policy board or at least some members of the policy board. Uh, and I tweeted this out, maybe flirting a little bit, a little bit too much with private equity uh, and not trying to really negotiate in good faith uh, as efficiently as possible with the public investment fund to come to an agreement. Uh, and I think the public investment fund's response to that flirting was to just throw, uh, you know, another billion dollars around. Um, and, and, you know, obviously we know for them it's a drop in the bucket, but what the big question there is, are they doing all of this just in an effort to enhance their negotiating position because they want to continue to come to terms on a definitive agreement? Or have they abandoned uh, the idea of coming to terms on a definitive agreement and they are just proceeding as, you know, life with that with two separate tours? Um, we don't know that answer yet. I will see once this deadline, this this soft December 31st deadline comes, uh, whether it's extended or uh, whether they actually come to terms. I I would be shocked if anybody comes to terms by December 31st, but you know, crazier things have happened. Um, I, I thought it was pretty crazy to see, to see Monahan and yes, here on my television screen. So if they come to terms on an agreement, I guess I can't be shocked. <laughs> I don't know if that was crazier than seeing John Rahm in a Letterman jacket on Fox uh, yeah. news, but yeah, you know, there's, a, there's a lot, a lot of crazy things that we've seen in golf. And obviously that meeting that we have been hearing about between Jay Monahan and Yasser al Ramayan, we're still, we still have not, heard of it happening it seems like it it continues to be week to week as we come down the stretch here 
You mentioned the private equity. I think back to the announcement, the TGL announcement at Fenway Park, um, you know, with the Fenway Sports Group, obviously being right there with Rory McIlroy, CNBC, asking poignant questions about those conversations, not necessarily getting poignant answers for obvious legal reasons, which is kind of why we're talking about all this. Uh, One side question, but I think people need to understand it. What is a sovereign wealth fund? Yeah, it's uh, so it's effectively a fund, a big pool of money that is controlled by a foreign government. So there is a some of the more active ones, at least in the United States, is the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. There is the Qatari Investment uh, Qatari Fund. Not sure exactly what they're called, but there's a Qatari Fund. There's also, I think, the biggest in the world, uh, believe it or not, is the Norwegian Fund, which has something like double the assets under management of the public investment fund, if you can believe that. Um, but yeah, so it, 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 a sovereign wealth fund is effectively a arm of a foreign government that invests on behalf of that government. Uh, so that's what we're seeing with the, the Saudi public investment fund. It is an arm of the uh, kingdom of Saudi Arabia that invests on behalf of the kingdom. So I just looked it up because I wanted to to make sure we got this right. It's the Qatar Investment Authority is basically the the PIF equivalent of Qatar. Yeah. And the reason that I think is important here is that they just bought 5% of the Washington Wizards from a Monumental yeah. Sports Group being the uh, sports and entertainment group being the parent company there. The NBA about a year ago um, opened the door to public and public investment funds or uh, sovereign wealth funds, like you said, being able to invest in teams. So this took place, the the Qatar announcement with the Wizards was July 11th. I don't think it was accidental that the first public investment fund to, excuse me, June 22nd, it was even closer to that June 6th date. I don't think it was a coincidence that this all happened right after the word merger was thrown around uh between the pga tour and the piff there's a lot a lot here i think it's going to become john right this is going to become more regular in the united states obviously the piff much more active in european sports in sports around the world before all of live golf happened whether that be formula one whether that be the public investment fund buying newcastle united in the Premier League, one of the 20 teams in the Premier League is owned by this entity. Uh, the Saudi International had become a part of the golf world in terms of being a DP World Tour event before going independent after all this happened. So there's a lot of conversation there between the way that everything is going to shake out. A little bit of a preface to where if we get to an agreement, whether it be before December 31st or after, Like I had said, in the framework agreement, the Saudis clearly wanted to make it a point that the public investment fund would be the dominant investor in this new proposed for-profit parent company to the PGA Tour, DP World Tour, and public investment fund or Gulf Saudi endeavors. The PGA Tour, it seems like, and I don't think you can fault them for this, knows that they need another partner to get this all past the DOJ. Perhaps if this is ever going to get passed in the United States, they will need a partner that handles that, that invests more money, 
than the public investment fund because the Department of Justice, to my knowledge, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is looking at this and seeing it as a potential precedent for all sorts of American companies beyond just golf. Is that where there's a little bit of a coming to a head that the public investment fund could say, well, we don't want to be a part of this if we're not the number one investor. Meanwhile, on the other side, you have the PGA, you have the Department of Justice saying, well, maybe there's a chance that we won't ever allow that to happen. So how do these two sides come to some sort of compromise? Yeah, it's I, I think Congress's primary concern is that is just where the money is coming from and that they are concerned with Saudi influence uh, in a, you know, historic institute, you know, sport like golf uh, in the United States. Um, I think that the some also needs to be understood in terms of the structure. So when people say, you know, the public investment fund is contributing all the money, so they're going to control everything. It's a little bit the the structure of it. So what's going to happen, uh, assuming, you know, this is from the initial framework agreement and what the initial was, who knows where the numbers are now. But I think the idea was that the public investment fund would commit $2 billion plus all of their live assets, which, you know, at the time, objectively, they were not too valuable um, to this new for-profit entity. And then the PGA Tour would contribute all of its commercial assets to that entity. That is all of their broadcasting contracts and revenues. That is all of their tournaments. That is all of their media rights. That is everything. So when people say, you know, the public investment fund are contributing all the money, the PGA Tour, all of that stuff, the PGA Tour is contributing, all of those commercial assets have a really significant value. And I don't know what the valuation of that is, but if it's something like 10 billion, 12 billion, 15 billion, then you look at it from a perspective of, okay, the PGA Tour is contributing really 80% of the value to this for-profit entity. And then the public investment fund is contributing another 20%. Um, so they may be contributing the actual liquid cash, but they're not contributing all the value uh, to this for-profit entity. And I think where the DOJ was concerned, as I mentioned, is, is primarily just they don't like that it's going to be heavy Saudi influence in the United States. And they also, fair enough, don't like the idea of, you know, the, the public investment fund has been making arguments in court for the better part of a year and a half that the PGA Tour is a monopoly and, uh, you know, they're anti-competitive. And now all of a sudden they're just merging into an even larger monopoly. Um, so that is the, uh, the, the, the hurdles that they're going to have to overcome. Uh, so I think if they do it in a manner that gets them some domestic investment and some U.S. investment uh, alongside PIF, uh, then that's possible. Like problem with that is PIF may not be open to that. Um, you know, they may they may just they may just say we don't want any other investors and PGA Tour contributes all its assets and we contribute ours and that's it. And if that's not the case, then, you know, we're we're continue to operate live as is. Um, but yeah, that's there's still going to be hurdles with the Department of Justice and with Congress, uh, no matter what type of agreement they come they come to, unless it's just a pure U.S. domestic uh, you know investment, which I, I, I guess is not out of the realm of possibility either. So, and then I think that's a great way to explain it all. I think that's why I'm doing this podcast, John, to explain a little bit of all that. You mentioned, for example, the Norwegian uh, pub 
public or the Norwegian whatever sovereign wealth fund. Do you think so? You think the Department of Justice would be treating this differently if perhaps it wasn't necessarily a mass oil entity like Saudi Arabia? Uh, I, I I do. I think so. Um, I think that depending on what side of the aisle, uh, and maybe not depending on what side of the aisle, uh, some people just view the Saudi Arabia as just a more hostile, uh, you know, more hostile party to the United States than a country like Norway. Um, Saudi Arabia has, uh, you know, we, we, to an extent rely on them a significant amount for oil. Um, so yeah, it, it, it a, a entity like that, that we are relying on, uh, politically is, you know, coming in and controlling us entities, um, or at least us institutions, then I guess that you have some issues. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of this also comes down to political grandstanding as well, uh, to be frank, um, because this, the public investment fund has been making, some pretty significant investments into a lot of U.S. companies and institutions for a long time. Uh, I think it's just very public that it's the PGA Tour and it gives some of the politicians, uh, you know, a, a, a camp, a little campaign uh, campaign boost. Um, but it, it, nevertheless, uh, the concerns are still there. And yes, I do think if it was a country like Norway, uh, maybe there would be less pushback uh, from Congress. And it's interesting because, like we mentioned, you know, with the with the NBA, American fans may see a lot more of these investments. And outside of sports, uh, they're certainly going to become, um, you know, more investments. And I also want to echo what one Rory McIlroy has said. You know, I would say from the beginning that if certain people want to invest, whether it be the Saudis, whether it be the Qataris, if they want to invest in sports, there's a lot of people out there like Rory who would say, as long as this is done in rather than becoming a hostile competitor done in a way that enhances uh, the history of sports and the entities that are already there. I think there's a lot of people that would be fine with that. Um, I think we're, we're not going to get in today to where the money's coming from and the concerns that people have there. And that is not us. I think just saying sports washing is working and it's done. I think that that's a reality to the way that things are and the way that things are moving in this country. So not just in this country, but around the world. Um, I think it's also important to touch on John, what exactly this means when we talk about a, the PGA tour creating a for-profit entity, this 501.36 that the P 501c6 that the PGA tour has always operated as that's not necessarily going away, but there is a parent company that is going to be a for-profit entity. And this does in a way mirror what we've seen from other professional sports in the U S. Yeah. Um, so it is going, and I, I will preface all of this by saying I am certainly not a tax attorney, uh, and it's probably going to take some type of interesting, uh, you know, tax strategy to structure it in a way that works. And I'm sure they'll figure it out. Um, you know, tax attorneys are, are, pretty brilliant in that respect. But uh, there are there are some precedents to look to for that. Um, for instance, the NFL Players Association, they are a non not for profit, uh, but they have an NFL Players Inc, which is a marketing and licensing arm uh, of that nonprofit that uh, is a for profit entity. So uh, I know that there's a possibility for it to work. Uh, and they will, you know, PGA Tour will probably look to uh, frameworks and structures like that, uh, in order how to do it. Uh, I would be lying if I was to stand up here and tell you that I 
know how they're going to try to structure this uh, from a tax perspective, because usually I see the word tax and I, you know, forward that email immediately to our tax people. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, the important thing to note here, right, is, is the PGA Tour being a nonprofit in the past, in the most basic terms, needed to donate as much money or give back as much money as the tour was making in revenue. And, you know, there are a lot of people with rightful concerns that so many of these PGA Tour events have meant a lot to various communities and have yeah. taken that as, um, you know, there are charities that rely on the PGA Tour to be their biggest partners. I mean, you look at some of the the names like Shriners Children's Hospital, and I think about Sanderson Farms and everything that it goes back to, it gives back to Mississippi. That was the first event I covered on PGA Tour Live. There are so many of these uh, and the PGA Tour, it seems like, well, obviously, like you said, see where things happen, but the NFLPA might be a great example of it doesn't mean that the charitable donations are necessarily going away. It might just mean that some aspects of professional golf are turned into this for-profit side, which I believe the MLB, MLB is the perfect example of an organization that was a 501c6 and turned itself into a for-profit entity. I believe the NFL, I don't want to, the NFL, again, I don't want to be quoted on this, well, but yeah. I believe that the NFL did that too. So, so it's happened in the PGA tour because of a lot of the things that we mentioned and being an individual sport and not run by teams and owners. Uh, it's been able to continue operating as a 501c6, but that is all. It seems like going to be shaken up. John Rom signing. Did that shake up the initial framework agreement to the point that it kind of has to be thrown out the door? We talked about the, uh, you know, the non-poaching clause that had been taken out in July, but how does that change up anything that was in the initial framework? So I, I don't think it changes up anything that was in the initial framework agreement. And the only reason I say that is because there was almost, uh, there was almost nothing in that initial framework agreement. It was, like three and a half pages long. Uh, and basically all it said is the parties will terminate all of their litigation with prejudice and then we'll figure it out later. That's effectively what the framework agreement said. Uh, so all that John Rahm signing did uh, is just change the negotiating position of the two parties, uh, at least at least in my opinion. I, I think that it, it, it significantly changed um, you know, increased live, uh, the public investment funds negotiating stance, uh, maybe embolden them a little bit. Maybe they can demand, you know, certain things in, in the final agreement that maybe they wouldn't have had if, if somebody like John Rahm hadn't left earlier. Um, but in terms of the actual framework agreement itself, it was, it was really bare bones, uh, to begin with. So, uh, there's nothing in there that it, that it really changed because there was, there was nothing there to change. What happens? If the two sides don't reach an agreement by December 31st. Yeah, that December 31st deadline, which people, even Jay Monahan keeps calling it a deadline. What does it mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a soft deadline. So essentially what it says is the parties will work toward a, you know, the, a, a definitive agreement by December 31st unless mutually extended by the parties, which means it's going to be mutually extended by the parties uh, unless unless negotiations and have, have fallen so drastically and they're in such bad shape that they're just going to call it off entirely. Um, so what I would expect is at an absolute minimum, 
a three-month, six-month extension, uh, if not longer. I would expect next year uh, at an absolute bare minimum for the PGA Tour and Live to operate uh, as as they've been operating for the last two years. Is your uh, master's poster okay there? <laughs> I was going to say, if everyone, yeah, we're we're – we're going to put this, we, we're putting up all video, John, and this uh, <laughs> will decide on YouTube if it's side by side or full picture in picture, uh, because I don't know if it's poetic or what it is, but my 2017 master's uh, flag just, just flopped on down as we were, as with the two, the double-sided tape wasn't exactly working uh, to, uh, to as much as I needed it to. Uh, I want to ask another question going into December 31st. Um, John Rahm, that was announced on a Thursday, Sunday night. The PGA Tour announces that Strategic Sports Group, led by Fenway Sports Group, is the group that the PGA Tour hasn't necessarily chosen, hasn't written. It doesn't seem like there's even maybe even paperwork necessarily signed between the two. But that is the group that the PGA Tour wants to bring in as the lead private equity partner to help negotiate everything to help be that third i don't know if you want to call it a third or a fourth partner obviously the dp world tour also needs to be mentioned as a partner in all of this but strategic sports group with some of the big names the john henry's of the world at fenway sports mm. group tom ricketts cubs owner mark lasry was with the bucks steve cohen obviously we got in new york jumps into this arthur blank these are big names and some people reacted to that announcement and said this is this is the PGA Tour taking a step in the right direction to get this done. Other people looked at it and said, "Does this did this mean anything?" What was your takeaway from that announcement? Uh, I, it, it was an odd announcement because it was like, "Here is the you know here is the strategic sports group, and they are going to be managing and handling all of this." And then, oh by the way, we're still negotiating toward an agreement with the public investment fund. So. The, the announcement, it, it said a lot, in my opinion, seemed like it said a lot of nothing. It was just, you know, kind of a, a here's here's an update and the update is we're going to update you later. Uh, that's kind of what it looked like to me. Um, I wouldn't be totally surprised. So the strategic sports group, whether they're coming on as an investor or whether, you know, just to quell the concerns of Congress, those people, not only are they very powerful in terms of they have a lot of sports connections and they have a lot of money and they can invest in the PGA Tour. They also have a ton of relationships and they have relationships with Congress people and they have relationships in lobbyists and in, you know, uh, th those type of those type of interests that if they are a part of this deal, it's certainly a possibility that some uh, Congress people that may have had a concern with it initially might, you know, maybe pull back the reins a little bit. So. Um, it, it is it, it, for for uh, no pun intended, maybe a strategic partnership uh, with Strategic Sports Group. But yes, it's uh, it, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I don't know if they're coming in because they are going to be a minority investor alongside PIF. I don't know if they're handling negotiations, um, mm -hmm. you know, in exchange for a fee. I, I'm not sure where that goes. So um, the the all of the PGA Tours announcements uh, and all of the announcements surrounding this entire thing so far have been really uh, lacking details. So um, we're just, it's kind of a wait and see for all of us at this point. With, I want to reword a question I sort of already asked, but now that we've touched on them as well, what does the DOJ need to see? I don't want to say want to see, what do they need to see in your mind 
to get something done here? Yeah, and and it's it's a perfect question because the the really the hallmark and the cornerstone of antitrust is whether something is best for the consumer or not. Um, so, it, it, in there are plenty of monopolies in this country. It is uh, not not necessarily it's not necessarily illegal to have a monopoly. Uh, it's illegal to maintain a monopoly. Um, so the interesting thing is, I think the DOJ is probably going to do some investigation. They're going to want to see number one that there is not a ton of uh, you know public uh, public investment fund influence on this. Um, so something like having a three member board, two of which are indefinitely appointed by the PGA Tour, uh, so that you know maybe the the public investment fund can't ever retain control, with the exception of maybe some veto rights over. Uh, certain actions. Uh, and then the second thing is they need to know that it's best for the consumer, which I don't think, in my opinion, is a really tough hurdle. Because if these two parties do come together, and they actually do come to terms on a definitive agreement, and all of these players are back and playing against each other all the time, uh, I think that that is pretty indisputably best for all of the consumers. I mean, people want to see all of these guys playing against each other uh, on a on a consistent basis. Um, and that's really what I hope happens because I, I tweeted this a few weeks ago. I see a lot of similarities right now between the PGA tour and, or not the PGA tour, but I see a lot of similarities between the golf world and what boxing was in the eighties, nineties, where it was one of the most popular sports in the world. And then all of a sudden fragmented into all sorts of different governing bodies, different weight classes, different, you know, three different heavyweight champions of the world. And, that is my concern with golf. Um, we may all be into it because we're such big golf fans, but golf is still a very niche sport and it is very vulnerable right now to something like that, where it splinters off into, you know, a DP world tour, a PGA tour, a live tour, an Asian tour, and all players are playing all over the place. And there's no one central kind of, you know, one central governing body that governs it. So I really hope that they come to terms on a definitive agreement and I hope they figure it out because, I think that is best for the consumer, and I I think that's pretty uh, pretty undisputed. I brought this up in the intro, but I want to give him credit. My guy Alex Myers uh, at Golf Digest said said on I guess during Monday Night Football, uh, this is a great reminder for golfers who suddenly think they deserve to be paid like NFL players for some reason. Tommy DeVito is probably more known in the U.S. than John Rahm already. Yeah. So you yeah. talk about. Sort yeah. of tempering expectations to uh, how much everyone is worth um, and how much golfers are worth, because I think you're right. There's the ultimate fear that I have as someone who loves the sport, who wants the best for the sport, who enjoys watching the best play the sport, is that things will get too segmented and fractured and that this person will claim to be this champion and this person will claim to be this champion and we'll have many professional tours that are going two to three months at a time or only select events as everyone just tries to grab as much money as possible here. Uh, the boxing analogy is interesting because people, John, look at the sport of boxing. I'll say this because we do the, the players think about this differently than the fans. There are people out there. There are boxing fans who might say, well, Floyd Mayweather, Canelo, Triple G, these guys make so much more than Muhammad Ali made. But of course, that's at the expense of the vast majority of boxers. How do we, and this gets into sort of our last topic of the night, how do we get 
perhaps the best professional golfers to understand that if they push too far or different agents and different partners involved, if they push too far that their clients might make the most amount of money, they are dividing the rich and poor to almost a detrimental level of this game. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point because the consolidation uh, that, that something like Live is is effectively doing, it, it creates the top 50 players in the world, and that's at the expense of the rank and file. Um, so uh, this is part of what I think needs to be included in the framework agreement is there needs to be some method, and there's, there's clearly enough money to do it. Uh, there needs to be some method of maintaining uh, the rank and file. There needs to be a method of maintaining things like Q school. Uh, there needs to be a method of maintaining things like charitable donations. Uh, if there's enough money to do all of that, then we, then we need to do all of that. I think that would go a very long way to maybe win over a decent amount of fans if they said, we are not, you know, we are not going to come in and turn this into a tour that is the top 75 players in the world. And those are the only people that are professional golfers uh, or at least tour, you know, tour members. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what needs to that's what needs to happen. And the there does need to be an understanding that if they push too hard that, yeah, I mean, there is there is a risk that the tour becomes 50 to 75 guys and that's it. Uh, and then, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate, but I think the, the terms of any definitive agreement really need to take into consideration, um, you know, the people that are the, the guys that are in the 50 to 200 to 300 range, because the vast majority of the guys that are now in the top 50 at one point were in that uh, 50 to 200. And it would be a shame if, uh, you know, there was no way to develop and, uh, you know, find those next next stars. And this is I'm not here to litigate you know, how to properly compensate everyone and how to spread FedEx cup points and, and, you know, dollar amounts through the PGA tour, through the rank and file members down to the corn Ferry tour, down to PGA tour Americas. Uh, lucky for me, I just get to show up and talk about it and whatever they hand me in terms of those FedEx cup guidelines at the start of the year, that is what I will recite on every broadcast. But we do need to touch on it because while Jay Monahan and all those at the top, and you mentioned the policy board, they're dealing with everything with the public investment fund, working with strategic sports group. They get a letter this past week from 21 players with a law firm attached, basically saying these guys want, they want transparency. They want to know more. They want more of a say in what's happening with them. I can imagine at the PGA tour office, uh, it's, it's, it's like they don't want to deal with a legal battle right now on two fronts, but is there anything that these guys, is there anything, do they have any power? These players, because the PGA tour is a member organization, is there anything that these guys can do to block what's going on at the top or anything other than just voting in certain individuals to the policy board? Yeah. I, I so the policy board is going to be, it's pretty clear cut. The policy board is going to be the one that votes on any agreement. So uh, I don't think that the, you know, the, the 21 or 20, 20 golfers that wrote that letter are going to be able to, you know, form as a group and try to block any agreement, um, especially considering that the exception of maybe one or two, uh, they voted on these policy board. It is, it's the same as voting an elected representative to act on your behalf. Uh, and that's kind of what happened. They voted certain player directors in to act on their behalf. And those player directors are now doing so. Um, 
I don't know that they have too much of a legal ground uh, to to try to demand transparency, but it is interesting that there's 20 of them and it is interesting that they hired the uh, kind of a powerhouse antitrust firm to do so. Um, so uh, potentially they try to do some sort of, I, I, I don't think, I don't anticipate a lawsuit. Um, I think that they are probably smart enough to know that they, you know, press a little too hard. Uh, it, it could backfire. Um, but I think that it is uh, certainly something to watch. But I, I, I think the PGA Tour Policy Board at the end of the day is going to make the decision as the elected representatives of those golfers. Um, so the fact that they are just not, you know, seeing any agreements yet and demanding transparency and demanding all this, it's just, it, it doesn't, it, it unfortunately doesn't always work that way. Uh, and they have to rely and they have to rely and they have to trust that their elected officials are going to negotiate an agreement that's best for them. Sussman Gottfried is the, I believe, the law yeah. firm that you mentioned um, in New York City that these players are, deal are dealing with. Obviously, uh, you know, we're talking about a group of players that golf fans know. Maybe the average fan doesn't necessarily know all these names. Danny Willett, perhaps being the most prominent as a former Masters champion. As a, you're always a Masters champion. You win the Masters. Yeah. He's a Masters champion. Wesley Bryan. Uh, among those other names on there, Ches Reeve. You kind of mentioned it. The PGA Tour is a representative government. We've heard so many different takes in terms of, you know, Jay Monahan is out there negotiating and speaking behind the players' backs. But then at the same time, you go back to the Delaware meeting, you go back to some of the things that the initial reaction to live golf by the players, sort of creating these signature events. The players also have power. I know your job as, an, as a lawyer is not to determine, like I said, the precedence and the roles of everyone within the PGA tour. But why is this that you have a membership organization, but you also have some individuals out there representing the PGA tour versus sometimes you have the PGA tour players themselves. Tiger Woods is not out there sitting with Yasser Al-Ramayn. It's Jay Monahan, but Tiger Woods back at the policy board is determining a lot of what's going on. Yeah. Well, a lot of that has changed in response to, I think the rollout, um, I think the players justifiably so uh, maybe kind of revolted uh, at some point in June and they added a sixth player director, which gave them an advantage or a majority uh, on the policy board, which they didn't have previously. So uh, I think that the players, maybe they hadn't genuinely, maybe it wasn't truly a member run tour uh, prior to June 6th. And if it wasn't, I think it's certainly a lot closer to that now uh, with the addition of the, of the, you know, extra player director on the policy board. And oh, by the way, that player director is Tiger Woods. Um, so I think that the, the, the players <laughs> certainly have significantly are wielding significantly more power now uh, than they were before. Um, I saw there was a report that uh, Jimmy Dunn and, and Ed, Ed Hurley, who were the ones that negotiated the initial uh, framework agreement, or at least, uh, you know, were, were meeting with the public investment fund have not been uh, even anywhere near the negotiations since June. Uh, and it's been kind of kind of player run. So um, if that's the case, and that's just kind of a, a report that I heard, if that's the case, um, then yeah, it is it is certain. <laughs> it is certainly much uh, getting to be more of a, a member run tour uh, now than it was before. I just want to show that my double-sided tape continues to fail me, but this is a player's championship flag that uh, 
came down as you were talking about Ed Hurley and Jimmy Dunn. Um, I we've reached this point, John. You've given so much, and I'm I'm so glad that you were able to explain. I think so many things, put this in terms for people to understand what is going on from a legal perspective. And the the only thing I've left for you is, well, where do we go from here? Where do you see things going as we approach this December 31st deadline? And as the golf world and golf fans just say, we just want to see the best players playing together in the best events at the best courses. What happens now? Yeah, I hope that's where it goes. Um, I hope that these two parties, I, I'm I'm confident that they are going to extend this December 31st deadline. I don't think we're going to see anything by then. Uh, I think after that, especially with the recent developments, I think there's probably a little bit more of a fire uh, under all of the parties to negotiate a definitive agreement at this point uh, that works for everybody. Um, because no matter the momentum that Liv has or, uh, you know, at the moment with these signings, they still are going to benefit greatly by partnering with the PGA Tour. PGA Tour has the infrastructure, they have the reputation, they have the broadcasting deals. Um, they would probably open Liv at least partially up to official world golf ranking points. Um, I know it's not controlled by the PGA Tour, but I'm, cer I'm certain it would probably help. Uh, on the flip side, the PGA Tour, uh, they could use an injection of 20, you know, two, $2 billion dollars uh, in order to fund, uh, you know, their their purses, in order to fund maybe their charitable purposes uh, and things like that. So uh, it is beneficial to both parties to come to a definitive agreement. And it's also beneficial to all of the fans uh, that they would do so so that we can see all of these players playing against each other uh, week in and week out. And I my, my, my hope is that we get there uh, sometime in the middle of next year. Uh, and by 2025, maybe we see a unified, uh, unified tour and it'll be, it'll be a lot more fun to see at that point. <laughs> There's for you, it's a lot about hope versus, you know, your heart versus your, your brain in terms of yes. being a lawyer and also being a golf fan. But it certainly sounds like uh, there is a chance and there's also there's a chance things do happen. There's a chance things don't happen. But it certainly looks like we're going to see John Rahm in, I'll say it, a live golf uniform because he'll be wearing some sort of yeah. uh, player outfit if it does come to that when live golf does start its 2024 season in February. It's going to be another weird, weird year in golf. And that'll definitely create an, an, an interesting situation if we get to the Masters. <laughs> And John Robb is the defending champion, and we are still at this point. John, it's uh, I thought we'd go half an hour. We've gone just about an hour. So thank you so much for doing this. Follow him, Jay Nucci, N-U-C-C-I 23, for all of your uh, golf law content on Twitter and beyond. And also, if you're in the Rochester area, John, or, or anywhere, and you need a good lawyer, this is your guy. <laughs> thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Awesome stuff there from John. I know I learned a lot. I hope you learned a lot. And hopefully this isn't all old news too fast. Or maybe hopefully it is as we approach this December 31st deadline. If you like what you heard, maybe it was your first time listening to Eyes on Golf. Remember to like and subscribe Eyes on Golf as we are getting things rolling. We're getting things off the ground. We've got a few more things to go before we break for the holidays. Maybe to give you some listening material to wherever you go for the holidays and for 
New Year's. I'm Jeff Eisenman. Big shout out to our producer, Sam Brief, for making this all work. And appreciate again, John Nucci stopping by. We'll see you next time on Eyes on Golf.